this family of Aboriginal people that I lived with was three adult brothers, their mother, their wives, almost all of their wives were sisters to one another, their wife's mother, 15 or so children, a couple of hangers-on, so about 30 of us all together. They were all Christian people. They had a very strong Christian identity. They'd heard about Jesus primarily through the outflowing of the Elko, Elko Island Revival of 1979, which is a well-documented Aboriginal revival. And so they'd given themselves to God and Jesus. In my first stint there, living there for five months, they met every single night for a Christian meeting, which included singing lots of songs in their own language and in other Aboriginal languages from the areas around. Uh, trying to read the Bible, although they didn't have it in their own language, and English was a bit hard. Praying, sharing testimony. They did this every night, which I found remarkable, and that was also a remarkable learning experience. Hi, Mark Peterson here on The Heart of Mission. What do you know about the Christian background of Australia's Aboriginal peoples? The Australian Bureau of Statistics tells us that at the last census, 3.8% of Australia's population identified as Aboriginal. That's quite a high figure, 1 in 26 Australians. But how many Aboriginal people are there in your church, say, 1 in 26? Well, you might say it's hard to tell if this is measured by people self-identifying. Maybe there are 1 in 26, but we don't know if they don't tell us. But I'm not so sure. I don't have data in front of me, but I don't think any of the churches I've ever attended have had anywhere near 1 in 26 people from an Aboriginal background. So, what's going on? Is there an uneven distribution? Are our First Peoples in churches somewhere else? hope so. Do they even have the gospel? And what about those in the most remote parts of Australia? Do they have the gospel? Well, we're going to have to wait for another day to discuss the absence of Aboriginal people in non-Aboriginal churches. But it's really these last questions we focus on today. Are there Aboriginal Christians in remote areas? Do they have the gospel? And the answer is emphatically yes, and yet it's complicated. There's still so much to pray for, so many opportunities for non-Aboriginal Australian Christians to get better informed, better connected, and more involved. But how do we do this? Where do we start? Well, today we're talking to an Anglican bishop. Oh dear, maybe you're thinking, is this colonialism revisited? You'll have to judge for yourself. Greg Anderson, Bishop of the Northern Territory, is first of all not your average bishop. I've probably seen him in thongs or flip-flops as often as any other kind of footwear. But also, he's not your average Aussie in gospel ministry. This bishop has a deep devotion to the first peoples of his diocese. He knows their culture better than any other whitefellow I know and has devoted himself to multiple phases of ministry in the top end over a long period of time with many of the most vulnerable cultures and communities anywhere in Australia. So I wanted to put a bunch of questions to Greg about the state of the church and the gospel among our most remote Aboriginal peoples. And I wanted to know if he would call them gospel poor. That's the designation we use in CMS. Are there urgent ministry imperatives? Do we still need to be sending missionaries to them, as CMS has been doing for over 115 years? But before we get to these questions, Greg's own story of coming to know and love so many Aboriginal people of the Northern Territory, that story itself is quite extraordinary. And it's where we start. 
Let's meet Greg. Countless souls around the world who do not know Jesus and can't easily access the gospel. This is the heart of mission. What small role can you play in God's big world? Missionaries, cross-cultural specialists, pastors, their stories and perspectives can really help us. Thanks for joining us. Grab a cuppa and strap in as we demystify, decode and de-stress the great challenges of cross-cultural mission. Greg Anderson, it's great to have you on the Heart of Mission podcast. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Mark. Now, you and I have known each other for a very long time. I remember when my uncle used to play the trumpet while you were playing the organ at St. Barnabas Broadway. I was still a kid. What are your memories from way back then? You were you were still a kid. Yes, I remember very well playing every Sunday up in the organ loft of St. Barnabas Broadway with your uncle doing trumpet descants. Yeah. And I knew your dad as well. When I was a student at Moore College, he was still one of the teachers there. So, yeah, a connection that goes back a very long time. They were good days and I and some of my own memories of music and doing and really appreciating music came from those days actually, especially some of those big Christmas carols, you know, that you'd do on Christmas Eve, you know, where you'd have the, the organ just going full blast and the descants. It was, it was great. And such a tragedy when uh-huh. the fire hit Barney's and took that organ away, maybe relocated it to heaven. Well, I hope that it's found a good place in heaven because <laughs> yeah. it was a lovely organ. It was. You could even still operate by pushing a bellows up and down rather than electricity. Wow. <laughs> now, a lot's happened since then. You've, you've become an Anglican bishop in the Northern Territory, and that's been an interesting journey. But I, I guess let's start with music because you actually did, you lived in the Northern Territory for quite a while, for a couple of years, was it? Or in the 1986-87 period, doing research into traditional Aboriginal music. Yeah, that's right. I lived in central Arnhem Land on a little Aboriginal outstation. If you looked at a map of Arnhem Land and put a pin right in the middle, that's exactly where I was, not very far from a crocodile-infested billabong, not that I knew that at the time, (laughs) living in a tent, collecting my own firewood to cook my meal every night. Nothing as advanced as toilets running water the first year but not the second year because oh. the solar pump down at the Billabong had failed. But with the the warmest, most generous, most hospitable, most engaged Aboriginal people you can possibly imagine, it was it was just a beautiful and life changing experience for me. And was it warm and engaging right from the outset or was there, were there some nervous days when you first got there, there? There seemed to be no nervous days on the part of the Aboriginal people who lived there. I wasn't the first white fellow that they had living there wanting to learn from them. They'd had a linguist 15 years earlier. They'd had an anthropologist just a few years before I was there. And they regularly had Northern Land Council people coming through doing various things. It wasn't that they were completely cut off from the outside world. But they, they were, the, the main man that I worked with was an internationally renowned artist and musician. He, he, he did exhibitions in Japan and Germany and India. So, he, you know, he, he, he was in, in many ways a simple, humble person who knew his own culture extremely deeply and who had been touched by God. And... It, it just made him the most 
welcoming as well as charming kind of person. Yeah, so there was there was and so there was almost no uh, ice to break in Arnhem Land. Oh, that's wonderful. So you you went with a study goal, but you came away with more than just information. Is that right? Yes, yes. I learnt the music from them and got to know them as people. And I did have a particular experience of sensing God's call to be involved in some kind of cross-cultural ministry. And it was really because of that experience of living with those Aboriginal people. Even though it was a radically different kind of standard of living kind of arrangement for you, that didn't put you off. It's funny how quickly you get used to that kind of thing. And we were a long way away from a road, probably the the driveway from the bush track that doubled as a road between Rumminginning and Bullman. We were perhaps, I don't know, four or five kilometres off that road uh, down down a steep escarpment. But even hearing a car going along the ridge between Bullman and Rumminginning, I'd, I'd have a sense of these people are too close to me. Get out of my get out of my territory. <laughs> so it was a, it was a very contained kind of existence. Yeah, special. You know, in 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 a, in a way, um, just me and this Aboriginal family. You know, we we did have visitors. We we had weekly visitors of the outstation school teacher um, and other people, but. It was a contained existence and we got to know each other very well. What did you, what were, I guess, what were the big things that you learned about Aboriginal culture through that experience? The key importance of family, that's, that's the biggest one. So as, as I suppose wider Australia now has some sense of, Aboriginal family is all-encompassing. And so everybody in one social universe has a kinship term. Everybody is your mum or your dad. There are many mums, many dads, uncles or aunties, brothers-in-law, mothers, 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 fathers, fathers, mothers, fathers, fathers, potential marriage partners, potential sisters and brothers-in-law, potential mothers and fathers-in-law, uncles and aunts-in-law. Everybody is part. Everybody in the social universe is in in that kinship system, and and it's absolutely fundamental. In particular, the way that the world is divided into two halves in the language that I learned, Dua and Yiritya. Everybody is either Dua or Yiritya. Every bit of land is either Dua or Yiritya. All natural species are either Dua or Yiritya, and the the key thing is that you must marry the opposite and your moiety is from your father so that that that's kind of the fundamental law of social engagement every everything flows from that so what sort of mistakes do we make when we're engaging with aboriginal people and their communities when we don't have a sense of that family I think, yes, I think we just misunderstand where they're coming from, particularly Westerners like me who come from a deeply individualistic background. You know, everybody's just on their merits. It's what you've achieved in your life that might count with some. But for the people that I was with in Central Arnhem Land, they, they are who they are because of their place in the kinship structure. It's not what they've achieved or what 
what their renown or fame is, they are. They have a place of being greater than their doing. And I, I found that remarkably helpful in my own life in some ways that, you know, you don't have to perform to get ahead. You, you are simply who you are. And pe- people accept you and relate to you as who you are. I was just reading the book of Ruth yesterday with my wife and, you know, you get to the end of the book of Ruth and there's these curious things, curious comments kind of about, you know, Boaz and him being a kinsman redeemer and so on. And I, I was struck that this is, every time we get to this in a, in a Western context, we kind of don't know what's going on here, but that's not the case for Aboriginal people who read Ruth, is it? I'm sure that's right. Yeah. Yeah. There, um, there are people who who perform a social role entirely because of their place in the kinship structure. Mm. Now, this was transformative for you, not only in just filling your mind with a, a sense of understanding and appreciation for the people, but it actually affected your plans for your life. What happened next? Well, I, I had embarked on this study thinking that I wanted to be a music therapist when I grew up, but this family of Aboriginal people that I lived with was three adult brothers, their mother, their wives, almost all of their wives were sisters to one another, their wife's mother, 15 or so children, a couple of hangers-on, so about 30 of us all together. They were all Christian people. They had a very strong Christian identity. They'd heard about Jesus primarily through the outflowing of the alcohol. Elko Island Revival of 1979, which is a well-documented Aboriginal revival. And so they'd given themselves to God and Jesus. In my first stint there, living there for five months, they met every single night for a Christian meeting, which included singing lots of songs in their own language and in other Aboriginal languages from the areas around. Uh, trying to read the Bible, although they didn't have it in their own language and English was a bit hard, praying, sharing testimony. They did this every night, which I found remarkable, and that was also a remarkable learning experience. But as I said before, it did, it did lead me to want to be involved in the growth and development of the Aboriginal church. They, they, they had such a deep Christian identity, and yet what they knew about the Bible was very limited. What they knew about theology was the basics. And I felt that with their level of Christian commitment, it would be helpful if they were able to fill in some of those blanks and gaps. And there was a Bible college for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Darwin, which had CMS involvement in it. In fact, from its outset, it had CMS people involved in it. And and so one thing led to another and really because of those connections in Central Arnhem Land, I wound up teaching at, at that Bible college, Noongalinia College in Darwin. Okay, so you, you, did, you went through that whole discernment process with CMS. You went to St Andrews Hall and, and you did your initial home assignment gathering uh, partnership and you, you went up with a, as a family with three children in 95 and spent yeah. a year in Numbawa um, yeah. for orientation. How did, how did Numbawa compare with your previous um, location experience? Well, it was, it, was, it was very different because it was a community of about 1,000 people rather than a homeland of about 30 people. 
So there were many different family groups, which many of them were traditionally intermarrying groups. Half of them belonged to one moiety, half of them belonged to the other moiety. And there was a very well-established church life. So Noobalwa had begun as CMS's Rose River Mission in 1952. And so they were were very well used to Sunday morning worship using a prayer book in their own language. Nighttime fellowship meetings such as I'd been used to at at the outstation where I was living before. a Bible translation program so that people were actively involved in wrestling with um, the English text or Greek text and and putting it into all boy language and and a well developed lay leadership the, the year that my family and I were there, the ordained Aboriginal leader had become quite sick and wasn't really able to function frequently, but there were key lay people, men and women, who really took the leadership. So there was there was Sunday service every week and fellowship, as we call it, the, the evening meetings, almost every night, uh, perhaps not so much in the coldest time of the year, July and August, but but you know a very a very well developed church life okay so you you went to Nogalinya college and uh, with cms after this year in nobawa um tell us about Nogalinya because it's quite an extraordinary place where people from community from all around come together to to learn tell us about what what is the college trying to do and how how is it going about doing that yeah the college was started 50 years ago this year by CMS people and people from what had been the Methodist Overseas Mission and morphed at some point into the United Church of North Australia, which was uh, was kind of a a united church before the Uniting Church came into being and then it morphed into the Uniting Church. People from those two different backgrounds recognised that they had a common need for Aboriginal leaders in local communities to be raised up and equipped. for both church and the wider community. And so it really began with those two streams of training people for Christian ministry and training people to be leaders in their wider community. Only two denominations, so I suppose that kind of makes it ecumenical. And then just a couple of years before we moved to Nungalinya, the Catholics had joined in as equal partners as well. So it was now a three church-based college. And I might say, you know, people spoke to me many times over the years about how how can all those three churches, different as they are, work together? And in real life, they work together well because we were thinking and teaching about Christian basics, not about the the finer details of theology about about which we had divided opinions. Um, and because uh, the history of Aboriginal mission contact in the Territory is that once there was one church in place in a particular area, that was it, so no other church would come in and kind of set up a parallel operation, people came from situations in the Territory where there was only one church. They didn't think of themselves primarily as Anglicans or Catholics or Unitings, and in these days, 
<coughs> Baptists or Lutherans or Pentecostals or something. Um, they just thought of themselves as Christians. And they knew that they were Catholic or Anglican or uniting, but their primary identity was as Christians. And they they did when we were there and still do. I'm still on the board of Nongalinia. They they just feel enriched by meeting with Christian people, other Aboriginal Christian people from a, a whole wide variety of different places. It's a, it's a very enriching experience for the people who go to Nongalinia students. So if you were to think about all of the Christians across the top end amongst the Aboriginal people, roughly what sort of percentage of them would come to Nongalinia at some point in their life to learn? That's a very good question. I, I would think a pretty high proportion. I'd have to dig down into that. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if it's a third or even a half. Nungalinya now has a very wide range of different courses from pre-Certificate 1 right up to Certificate 4. So it's, it's catering for people whose own experience in the education, in the Western education system, hasn't been so great, um, who don't have great strength in literacy. Um, they they just as welcome at Nungalinya as people who've finished high school and even engaged in tertiary studies. And and because people aren't valued according to their achievements, but who they are, then that's not really a problem. Now, not long ago, we had a conference up there, Top End Global, and at that conference we had an interview with James and Marlene and that interview was, was on this podcast on the Heart of Mission last season. James and Marlene, along with Mandy as well, are Aboriginal teachers at the college. So it's not, it's they're primarily Anglo teachers in the college, but there are these teachers as well. Can you tell us about some of the issues and challenges that they face as Aboriginal teachers for Aboriginal people? Yes, uh, there are, there's also a Papua New Guinean teacher and as has been the case over the course of the college's history, so it hasn't always just been whitefellas on the teaching staff. I think the main challenge is that everybody who wants to be a teacher is really interested in the students' learning and progressing their understanding and their skills. These days, there's a whole lot of educational infrastructure around that, assessment criteria and curriculum design and all that kind of stuff. I would say that James and Mandy and Marlene more interested in people understanding and learning skills than in the infrastructural stuff that whitefellas require, you know, ticks in the boxes of and, and you know, even the qualifications that you need to teach having your um, cert for in BAE, training, training assessment and whatever it is. Yeah, so all of that infrastructural stuff, I think they don't find all that enlivening. But I assume it's a great goal to have Aboriginal teachers teaching Aboriginal people. What's your reflection? Yes. Because it's also complicated, isn't it? Nungalinya would love all of the teachers to be Aboriginal because communication within their own culture is likely to be more successful than cross-cultural communication and because they've got some sense, some very strong sense of where students are coming from. Of course, every community is different, but there are many 
similarities and parallels across all the different communities in the top end. And I might say students come to Nungalinya not just from the top end, they come from Central Australia, the Kimberley, even in small numbers from down south. But in terms of what, what the college is trying to achieve, the more Aboriginal teachers there are, the better. And we're also aware that, you know, there's always an attrition rate. So we kind of did the metrics a few years ago and, you know, to produce one person, you probably got to start with a field of 50. And there are, there are several hundred students attending Noongalinia in every, any given year, but the, the flow-through rate to become a teacher is pretty low. So it means that you have to start with a very big pool. But that, yes, that would be the great goal of having many more Aboriginal teachers there. Now, just thinking about the gospel and the Aboriginal peoples in Australia, we would not call them gospel poor, would we? Well, it depends on how you define gospel poor, really. So um, there are certainly, there are, there are churches in every community, Anglican and other denominations, and, and the life of the church has been ongoing in those communities for many decades. But I think of one of the remote Anglican communities where there are a, a population of perhaps six or 700, regularly less than five people attending worship together. And if, if the key ordained leaders were to no longer to be able to minister, you know, they got sick or too old or something like that, uh, it's difficult to see the life of that church continuing, really. So they're not gospel poor, but you might say that they're gospel fragile. And I think, I'm sure this is just as true for non-Aboriginal communities, white fellow communities and all others, as well as Aboriginal communities. It's easy for things to get tangled up with the gospel. And I think because of the history of Christian mission in Arnhem Land, a whole lot of things got tangled up with the gospel, like, for example, Sunday morning church attendance, weekly Sunday morning church attendance, that have enormous historical precedence and going right back to Jewish synagogue weekly, weekly corporate worship. But there are other ways of being together apart from Sunday morning church. But that's just, you know, that, that, that is the effect of the particular cultural way in which the good news of Jesus came. And there's a whole bunch of other things as well. And working out what it means to be an Aboriginal Christian that's different in an okay way from Christians in other cultures and other places, that's, that's a key task for the Aboriginal church. And maybe that task will be facilitated by having non-Aboriginal people reading the Bible with them, helping them to get some historical perspective about the range of ways that the gospel has been contextualized at different times and in different places so that so that there's not a feeling that the way that the gospel came in some places in the early 20th century, others mid-20th century, is the only way that Christian faith can be understood and expressed. Mm. So you actually left the top end and you came back to uh, Sydney and you worked at Moore College in the, in the mission department. 
And that was, what, for about seven or eight years or something? Seven years? Eight years? Eight years. Eight years. Eight years. I was the head of the Department of Mission at Moore College. I was also the feet of the mission department. I was, I was every part of it. It was a one-person department. Um, happily, the ministry department, people took pity on me and let me come to their staff meetings so that I could <laughs> feel that I had some friends. Excellent. And and as you had take as you took yourself out of the I guess the front line of mission amongst Aboriginal peoples and you went into that theological education space, there's an abstraction there, but it's also a, you're seeing people, you know, trying to discern a path forward for mission. I'd love to hear your 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 reflections on that process of coming out of the front line and into the into the, the halls of learning. Yes. What I came to, to Moore College with was a great desire that everybody who's involved in ministry will be helped by approaching it as though it were cross-cultural ministry. And paradigm, pe- people from Sydney will understand this, people from outside of Sydney won't know what I'm talking about, but if you, if you grew up in the Shire in Sydney, kind of southern Bible Belt, Sutherland Shire, from Cronulla through to Menai, those, they, they think of themselves as a race apart, really, within the Sydney population. So if you grew up in the Shire, did your ministry training and went back to be a minister in the Shire five or ten years later, you would think that you knew all about it. You know, that is your home. But actually, in the five or ten years that you were away, uh, it will have changed and you need to have your antennae on to understand the way the culture works. just as, So going back to the Shire, you should treat it as though you were going to Tanzania or Tonga or Tajikistan. You need to be as, as committed to learning the culture and learning how communication works as if you were going what we, what we think of as, you know, really cross-culturally. So it was, it, was, it was my experience with Aboriginal people that led me to that conviction that we will all be helped by thinking of all ministry as cross-cultural. And starting at Moore College, it, it, it was cross-cultural for me as well. So I think it took me more than 18 months before I finally succumbed and adopted the lecturer dress code of, you know, a long-sleeved shirt and long trousers rather than shorts and thongs. They were very gracious to me. Nobody, nobody told me. Actually, Greg, have you noticed there is a different dress code here that you're not really conforming to? But the level of the level of interest in what God was doing, not just in the places the people came from, but in other parts of the world, we had a we had an annual mission awareness week, which was a bit like the agricultural show of world mission organisations, and 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 after after being there for some years, we launched a weekly. Monday Mission and Ministry Hour, where we often got people who were back in Australia on home assignment from different parts of world ministry coming along and sharing their experience and answering questions. So, that, you know, there was there was very keen uh, interest across the board in what God was doing in other places. Mm. And did you ever think you would be a bishop? <laughs> no, no. Well, as um, so, some possibly my wife, some kind of person, um, gave me a couple of, you know, dress shirts that happened to have purple tones <laughs> in them. Um, this is the one colour that one must not wear as a more college lecturer, just in case people imagine that one has aspirations towards becoming a bishop. No, no, I never expected to be picked as a bishop. Um, well, how did they twist your arm? 
<laughs> well, uh, when Greg Thompson, my predecessor, announced that he was finishing up as bishop in 2013, I did get some calls from people in the territory who knew me as to whether whether I might be interested in having my name considered. And apart from absolutely loving the Territory, as I had from when I first arrived in 1986, a key part of the Anglican Diocese of the Northern Territory is the Aboriginal churches of Arnhem Land. And I, I did have very deep experience in those churches and I had pretty deep experience in three of three of the seven mainstream churches as well. So it did seem to make sense to have my name being considered <clears throat> and that's what happened. Quite a few people were very glad to hear that you got appointed to that role, myself included. It's, I guess it gives you a different perspective, though, on the ministry that you've been involved in in the top end. You, you in a sense, have there's a coordination role, there's an oversight role, there's, it's a senior leadership role. There's, there's a recruiting role. Recruiting role, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the recruiting really does, I mean, each church has its own parish nominators, you know, charged with finding new clergy when a position becomes vacant. But, yeah, the, the, the reality is that the in the big picture, a bishop is pretty significant in recruiting people to come to the diocese, both for mainstream ministry and as supporters of what's happening in the unmanned Aboriginal churches. I mean, how does that work for you in the Aboriginal churches? Do they... Do, do, do you appoint the leaders there? How does that work in terms of their own, their you know their own people and their own expectations? Yes. Well, I ordained somebody a couple of years ago in one of our communities, and I I believed it was my business to be speaking to the the leaders of the wider community. You might say the secular community leaders, or even the power brokers, you might call them, because. Paul, after all, says to Timothy that people who are to be church leaders have to be of good repute um, in the wider community. So there's no point ordaining somebody who I think is, you know, skilled and able and loves God and loves the Bible and loves people if they're if they're not of good repute in the wider community. So uh, there's not always a huge pool of people to draw from when it comes to finding ordained leaders for the Aboriginal churches. We certainly need Aboriginal leaders for those churches, apart from anything else, because church happens in the language of the people rather than in English. And uh, it seems to take most outsiders a very long time to get good at the local Aboriginal languages. And also those people who, from the local communities who are ordained to be church leaders or are, are chosen as lay church leaders, they, they could do with support and we can provide some degree of fly-in, fly-out support. But in recent years, it's been, I think, very beneficial and, and loved by the Aboriginal church leaders that they've had outside of church support workers living in four of our six Aboriginal parishes. Now let's just talk about that for a bit mm. because this is kind of where your current work now as a former CMS missionary puts you in connection with the whole host of current CMS workers and in fact you're as the in, in 
in terms of your role over the Anglican diocese up there, you're, you know, we work together a lot in terms of, you know, how does CMS potentially place there? The first question I want to ask you is, is CMS helping? And I guess the second question is, what are you as the bishop, what do you as the bishop want the CMS people to be doing? <laughs> is CMS helping? I'm not saying yes, just because I'm on this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> CMS is really helping and has been helping for many years and we're so grateful for CMS's support. Yes, so I'm not just saying that as somebody who's a vice president of CMS, a former CMS missionary, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's really, it's, it's difficult to imagine Aboriginal work going forward without the involvement of CMS, so it's absolutely invaluable in my opinion. What do we want CMS to be doing? Well, I know that people are coming along, you know, fired up with God's call on them to be involved in cross-cultural ministry somewhere. And often there's a backstory to that, I know. They might have been in a, in a SUS group that's been praying for Western Europe or parts of Asia or parts of South America or something. Or they've got a particular link with, with a missionary in a particular location and so they've become interested in what God is doing there. So, so we know that people are coming to speak to CMS on a regular basis in all of the different branches, not just SANT. And we're hoping that as CMS speaks with people like that, that one of the places that they suggest to people who still haven't quite made up their minds about where God might be calling them might be to come to the Northern Territory. For me, it was a, you know, it was a special a special thing that I'd done that music research work in Central Arnhem Land in the mid eighties. You know, there was kind of a logical progression there. But there are there are other people here as CMS missionaries now who had no particular history with Aboriginal people at all, but had other kinds of experiences, you know, perhaps in a big city, in a multicultural church. Uh, that have equipped them really well to be involved up here. And, and I suppose what we're looking for especially is people who are prepared to stand alongside leaders, to listen to them, to gently encourage them, to be part of the encouragement and empowering that mean that those local people can stay in ministry for a long time. And they, those, those, those people in ministry face significant burdens, but being supported by other strong Christians who know where to look in the Bible, you know, for a particular occasion, a particular need, who understand the picture of the whole Bible, how the whole Bible fits together as the Word of God. Having people like that as a resource is just incredibly valuable for the local church leaders. So some of the roles that come that, uh, that people take up when they come up to the top end are specifically church support workers. I think you mentioned that before. Yeah, um, church support workers. And they would be people who I, I guess would have a, a ministry discipleship kind of role, I gather. But yes. you might also have, it is also possible, or, or maybe I'm asking the question, is it also possible for people to come with other professional skills and still be church supporters, but not necessarily with that ministry profession kind of training? Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. I think of a man who was the school administrative clerk in one of the remote community, one of the Anglican remote communities in Arnhem Land. He worked there for nine years. At For most of those nine years, there weren't any kind of, you know, uh, uh, official professional missionary people there. Um, he didn't take an upfront role at all. And yet he was a constant sounding board to the church leaders there at the time. He he provided um, a link with the outside world that was easier for him than for them. He wasn't actually from an Anglican background, but, you know, a link with the diocese as well. So he was there. His nine years there included my five or six years working for the Anglican Church in the Northern Territory after I'd finished being at the Aboriginal Bible College. And so I'd go and visit the community that he was uh, living in and working in and just having him there, it made it so easy for me because he would always answer the phone when I rang. He, he, he was hospitable. I used to go around to his place for dinner kind of thing. He'd organise accommodation. He'd let people in the Aboriginal church know that I was coming all of those kinds of helpful background things, it was really just so good for the church to have him there. He had a full-time job at the school, um, but he really gave a lot of time and energy into supporting the church. So CMS is really very keen to to talk with anybody who's keen to think through those opportunities, not just the, I guess, the the professional missionary but also the the other options, and you've already mentioned a couple. If someone were thinking about, yeah, just what it could look like for them, maybe, maybe they're an inquirer who's fairly early on. Let's finish with this question. What, what's, your, what's your pitch? Well, the, the Aboriginal church at this stage of its development in the top end will be helped um, for the next years by having uh, outsiders living in those communities, standing alongside, supporting, encouraging um, the local church people. Even though we've talked about the possibility of people, you know, coming as teachers or school administrative clerks or doctors or nurses or um, retailers running the general store or council office staff of various kinds, I don't want to rule out the idea of the full-time, you know, you might call it the professional official missionary. There are pluses and minuses both ways. So when you go as a teacher or a nurse, you immediately have a connection. You know, people kind of know what to do with you mentally. They know what kinds of things you're doing, what you stand for, what you're there for. You've kind of got, in a way, built-in relationships through colleagues, all of, you know, health health clinics and schools have plenty of Aboriginal people working at them in most places. So you've got an immediate line of contacts. But you're also busy doing what you're there and getting paid for. The person who's the, the full-time official missionary, it's harder to get started in a way because you've got to find your own relationships You've got to find the people in the church who you might have a special connection with or um, who need most encouragement and support, and that takes longer, but you've got more time to do it. So if you were an, an inquirer in the early stages of inquiry, 
I'd want to be thinking about both those possibilities. It's not it's not one size for everything. Different people have their own different family needs and situations. But both of those possibilities are very good possibilities to think about and to talk with CMS about. Greg Anderson, it has been an, a great pleasure to catch up with you and, and just really interesting to hear your story again and your reflections on these various key moments in this story. I, I thank God for you and for what he's done in, in really drawing you into this love for the Aboriginal people and into the role that you're in at the moment. And I just want to say thank you for the interview and thank you for being on the Heart of Mission podcast. Thank you, Mark. The pleasure is all mine. And I don't want to bypass CMS in any way at all. But if people want to make an inquiry, you know, about a particular thing in the Territory, then emailing admin at ntanglican.org.au, that would be a good way of getting answers, admin at ntanglican.org.au. Fabulous. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thanks for being with us. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on the Heart of Mission podcast. What small role can you be playing in God's big plans? To find out more about CMS and opportunities that might be there for you, search us on the web to find your local branch and local social media channels. CMS is a fellowship of Christian people and churches committed to global mission. We work together to set apart long-term workers who cross cultures to share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ for a world that knows Jesus. See you next time.